Welcome to another Q&A episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, Greg and I field listener questions about electromyostimulation, the effects of alcohol consumption on body composition, fruit consumption during weight loss, weightlifting shoes for squatting, overrated and underrated exercises, and much more. Remember, if you want your questions answered on a future episode, you can submit those questions using the links that are available in the episode description. As always, thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. On this Q&A episode, we are going to get right into business. So the first question is for Greg. The question is from Jesse Armstrong Coy. How do you think you say that? I, th- I think that's probably close enough. Close enough. I mispronounce all the names, so it'd feel weird to start getting them right now. I've got such a long track record of getting every name wrong. It's like that Key and Peel sketch. <laughs> it, it is getting... A.A. Ron. It is basically getting to that, that stage right now. Um, okay, so the question is, um, do you think there's any purpose to including EMS in your training for strength or muscle hypertrophy? Uh, would it be useful on top of your normal training? And if so, how would you use it to produce the best results? Yeah, so for people listening who don't know what EMS is, it stands for electromyostimulation. Um, Basically, you're hooking electrodes up to your muscles and you have a machine that runs a current uh, into those electrodes to stimulate your muscles to make them contract. Uh, EMS is frequently used in rehab settings, um, but they're... There are some people who think that it can be useful for um, primarily strength development. I, I haven't seen as many people promote it uh, for hypertrophy. But anyway, so I want to be transparent about the fact that I have no practical experience with EMS. Um, it, it's something that interests me a little bit, but it doesn't interest me enough to actually drop money to... <laughs> to buy an EMS unit. Um, but what I will say is in 2011, 2012, there were a couple systematic reviews published by Filipovich and colleagues uh, in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. One of them was just about the EMS parameters that would help one uh, elicit the largest adaptations if they wanted to use EMS for uh, strength and power development. So I'm not going to recap that we'll link it in the show notes if you want to use ems um that systematic review would probably provide you with with a useful guide for the machine settings that you would use uh the one the other systematic review was looking at um like the actual adaptations seen with ems stimulation in trained and elite athletes and What I'll say is that I don't necessarily trust the results of this uh, this systematic review and meta-analysis simply because, so, either EMS is the best training modality, modality on the planet and everyone to this point has been overlooking it in spite of the fact that there's you know, pretty much any team in a high-performance setting will probably have an EMS unit. Um, But in spite of that, they've completely missed it as just a total godsend for 
strength and power development or um, the studies that fed into this uh, systematic review and meta-analysis have some sort of systematic bias where they're reporting outrageously large effects. So what do I mean by that? Um, in three to six weeks of stimulation, we're talking about uh, in-trained athletes, isometric max force increasing by uh, 60 to 80%, um, eccentric max force increasing by around uh, 40% or so, rate of force development increasing by about 75%, Vertical jump height increasing by up to 25%. Um, sprint times decreasing by close to 5%. So, I mean, the thing is, if, like, those are all, those would all be pretty impressive changes for completely untrained athletes. To see changes that large in trained and elite athletes, um, you don't come across that every day. And so I I understand that this isn't the most rigorous argument, but I kind of feel like if EMS worked this well, uh, due to the fact that it is already pretty ubiquitous in high-performance settings, you would kind of think that everyone would just be using it a lot already. And talking to sports coaches um, who coach either collegiate athletes or professional athletes, it doesn't seem like EMS is something that they lean on super hard as a training modality, which makes me think that the actual size of the benefits one would expect to get in the real world are probably considerably smaller than, than what's being reported in this meta-analysis. So I could be completely wrong about that. It like EMS could be the thing that everyone is overlooking that could give you a huge leg up on the competition. Um, I'm just a little bit skeptical that that is the case. What do you think, Eric? Yeah, I mean, I agree. You look at the uh, just the percentage changes in that meta-analysis, they seem pretty pretty wild. I feel like if, if there were interventions out there that were affecting those outcomes to that magnitude, it would be, it wouldn't be the exception. It would be the rule. It's like, are we going to train on top of on top of this EMS? Because <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, those effects are that big. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just the the thing that I'll admit I've never read a lot of the EMS literature because I've always it's never been my research focus. And in terms of practical application, it's always seemed to me like a remarkably impractical thing to apply. Um, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I haven't looked into it a ton personally, but, um, I, I agree with your interpret interpretation of that meta analysis. And I just don't think there's much there, uh, especially for the general lifter. Who's not in a, like a professional setting where they have access to all sorts of equipment like that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, well, of course I agree. Cause you just restated what i said good well, job we, on the we originality both agree with there. you then that's great sure sounds good um okay for eric what are the effects of alcohol consumption on body composition is fat loss affected uh or compromised regardless of being in a caloric deficit and that's from jp close so this one uh it's a topic near and dear to my heart um i responsibly enjoy a beverage from time to time 
big fan of IPAs and bourbon. Greg, what are you drinking lately? Not much, honestly. Um, You're generally a quad guy. You you like the sweet Belgian beers. I've been into New England-style IPAs recently. Okay. So, the question is, uh, our indulgence in these delicious beverages, what are they going to do to us in terms of our gains? Now, I want to preface this by saying, if you're in a caloric deficit and you have some of your calories coming from alcohol, you're still going to lose weight. Um, and, and that's so that if that's what you're worried about uh, to the person asking the question, you can absolutely still lose weight and, and create a caloric deficit with alcohol in the diet. Now, obviously, when we, we talk about creating a caloric deficit, we're not just talking about total calories. We get more specific and talk about how much protein should I have, how much carbohydrate. So when we talk about setting your macros, we often talk about protein, carbohydrate, and fat. Sometimes fiber gets uh, mentioned. It should get mentioned. Um, We rarely talk about alcohol because I think the default assumption is that alcohol is not going to be a major contributor to your macros. Uh, But it is a macronutrient that contributes seven calories per gram. On a practical note, when my clients uh, ingest alcohol, when they're tracking, I encourage them to just count all of the calories as carbohydrate because I never like to have alcohol taking away from fat or protein in the diet. But now, down to business of what it's actually doing. Um, There's quite a bit of evidence showing that excessive intakes of alcohol or high intakes of alcohol are not great on the muscle end of body composition. So um, there's a, a good review by Kimball and Lang in 2018 that talks about all of the kind of molecular mechanisms by which alcohol affects muscle. Um, so we know that alcohol decreases the activity of the mTOR signaling pathway, which is really important for skeletal muscle development and maintenance. Um, and that has a bunch of effects on all these different downstream protein targets that are really involved in the building and maintenance of skeletal muscle tissue. Um, they also mentioned in the review something that they call leucine resistance, um, that, that a, a given amount of dietary leucine uh, in the context of high alcohol, high alcohol intake does not seem to elicit the same response in terms of protein synthesis. So um, there, there's the muscle end. There's also the endocrine side of things. So a lot of hormones are affected by, again, we're talking relatively high alcohol intakes. So we th- see things like increases in catecholamines, increases in cortisol, uh, increases in estrogen, reductions in human growth hormone and testosterone. Uh, So a lot of endocrine changes that you probably weren't hoping for, uh, to summarize it and put it in a nutshell. So uh, I I think it's quite intuitive and and anyone asking the question already knew that uh, having really a really high proportion of your calories coming from alcohol is a bad idea, whether you're in a deficit or not. Um, between the muscle effects and the endocrine effects, it is not conducive to optimizing body composition. So theoretically, you could have a whole bunch of alcohol in the diet, still be in a deficit, I guess, um, and you could still lose weight in that context, but the quality of weight loss would probably be pretty garbage. You'd probably be losing a lot more lean mass than you'd like uh, and not as much fat as you'd like. Um, And then there's also the obvious health uh, effects of that as well. If you have limited calories and a whole bunch of them are coming from alcohol, you are probably missing out on a lot of things in the diet. So um, in uh, in the reviews that you see on alcohol, a lot of times they'll say 
to keep your alcohol dose. If you're interested in body composition and performance outcomes, to keep your your alcohol dose uh, for a given day under 0.5 grams per kilogram, um, about there is kind of the upper limit where they're like, if you're there, you should be totally fine. Um, one unit of alcohol, I looked this up, one unit, I guess, is technically eight grams. I, th- I actually thought it was higher than that, but but that's what I was seeing. Uh, but apparently most drinks actually contain one to three technical units of alcohol. So um, the moral of the story there is if you're having, you know, a couple drinks, you're probably fine. Um, and even on a deficit, it, it shouldn't be super problematic to fit a drink or two into your macros and still have completely fine success with your your bodybuilding prep or your weight loss or whatever you're going for. Uh, but once you start getting into higher intakes, it's first of all harder to make the puzzle work in terms of having macros that support your health and performance while including all this alcohol, uh, but also uh, from a molecular perspective, from an endocrine perspective, you are giving yourself a bit of an uphill battle in that cut. Now, I do want to mention uh, there's, you know, Eric, uh, Eric Lee Salazar. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, actually, I believe last night he became an IFBB pro. Yeah. Yeah. I saw which that. Which is pretty wild. So Dude, his, his arms are ridiculous. They're not normal. They're not normal arms. Outrageous. Yeah. Because what does he weigh on stage? Like 140? Yeah, about 140, I believe. His arms look like he should weigh like 210. I know. It's crazy. Um, Yeah. He he challenged... The last time I saw him, he challenged me to a bodybuilding competition. (laughs) And I I kept just trying to shift like the years down. I kept like kicking the can down the road. And I was like, well... I'm busy this year. Give me a year to build and then a year to maintain and then a year to cut. So I basically talked him back to like, we're probably going to go head to head in like 2035. Sure. And I'm just going to assume that by then he's just done bodybuilding and I'll win by attrition. That That's the plan for now. But in any case, in his prep this year, he was mentioning that he still has a drink or two from time to time. Um, and I mean, I mean, like pretty deep in the prep. The, the, I'm not like, you know, oh, I started prep last week. I think I can squeeze a, a Miller Lite in. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was having regular full body beers uh, pretty deep in his prep. Um, so it, it can be done. You just have to be sensible about the dose um, to make sure that you're not going to cause all sorts of chaos uh, when it comes to muscle signaling and your hormones. Yeah, I, I think the important thing to note is that... <sighs> If you look at the literature, looking at the effects of alcohol on muscle and body comp, things don't look good. But one thing to keep in mind is most of the studies use a really, really high dose of alcohol. They do. Uh, to see what happens. And and that makes sense from a scientific perspective, because if you're, <laughs> if you're, if you're trying to look at the effects of something and you have a limited research budget, then ideally, if you can induce a large effect, you don't have to recruit as many subjects, and ultimately, it's much more feasible to do your study. It comes out a lot cheaper. But, so as a result, if, you know, if one or two drinks of alcohol does something, it's it's probably a relatively small effect, and you'd probably need a pretty large sample size to actually reliably detect it. So, for example, um, I know the study that I see people bandy about on social media all the time about, oh, can you have alcohol after training? Um, 
there was a study that looked at uh, alcohol versus carbohydrate versus protein versus alcohol plus protein on it was either mTOR signaling or muscle protein synthesis. I think it was muscle protein synthesis. Um, but yeah, it found that just protein without alcohol was best. People did still synthesize some protein with protein plus alcohol, but it was like a 30-40% reduction in MPS relative to just the protein condition. But the the part of that study that... Um, <laughs> That never gets reported in like Instagram memes and typically doesn't get reported when people like write about the study. And, and I don't mean scientists. I mean like fitness bloggers is what they were interested in for that study. Like their actual research question is whether the amount of alcohol that athletes would typically consume after winning a big game could inhibit recovery. And so based on survey data from, I think, NCAA athletes, they um, the alcohol dose they used was something like 8 to 14 standard drinks. And so we're talking a shit ton of alcohol. Like, I mean, <laughs> eight drinks is a lot. Eight drinks is a lot, yeah. It, 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 and when people are like, oh, can I have alcohol after training? They're typically thinking a beer or maybe i'm going out with the lads i'm gonna have three beers you're typically not thinking you know after my hard squat day i'm gonna drink eight shots and then see if that has a negative impact on recovery at that point i feel like you don't even need science of course taking eight standard drinks is going to negatively impact recovery you know <laughs> yeah uh, i mean if you struggle to get out of bed in the morning your recovery is impaired yeah 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 <laughs> so um yeah I, I think the i think the thing to keep in mind is as with anything else the dose makes the poison uh alcohol is a poison i was gonna but, say that's a literal <laughs> approach to that yeah, yeah. uh but it, it, it's a pretty weak poison so you know, low to moderate consumption is probably not going to have much of a noticeable effect. Um, and, and really with relatively low alcohol consumption, I would be more concerned about the effects on sleep than the direct effects on, on like protein metabolism. It's a good point. Um, cause e even like one or two drinks of alcohol can negatively impact sleep quality, but but yeah, I mean, you know, that's the thing that really pisses me off. Um, like, this is just me whinging about life in general. The two things that I really would love to have late at night when I'm winding down, I'd love me a good cup of coffee or I'd love me a nice beer. Yeah. And like all the research says, well, close to bedtime, get rid of both of them. And it's like, this is all I want in life and I can't have them. Yeah, it's uh, it's garbage, really. But yeah, the, the dose makes the poison. Um as long as you don't consume much alcohol, you'll probably be fine. If you're consuming enough alcohol that you're worried about your alcohol consumption, uh, it's probably not great. Yeah, it, it, that is the sleep issue, though. That's a good excuse, though, when someone is shaming you for having a beer at like 11 in the morning and you're like, well, I just I'm worried about my sleep quality. I got to get it in early. Yeah, for sure. That, that's my story. And that's that's evidence based. Sure. OK, uh, question for Greg here. I would like to know what stage lifter I am 
If I've been training consistently for five plus years, but I'm still 15 plus kilos from my genetic potential, according to Dr. Casey Butts calculator, am I advanced or intermediate? So (laughs) I don't know, nor do I really care. Um, I think that I, I think that people are too quick to want to label themselves and they also probably overstate the differences between various training training categories. So someone who's completely untrained, uh, th- that is like a very different beast than someone who has some level of training experience. Um, th- you know, your, your first couple of weeks of lifting, um, you're going to get way more muscle damage, way more DOMS and soreness than you will at pretty much any other time in your training career. Uh, adaptations occur much faster. Um, you're going to get a lot of rapid strength gains from neural adaptations and just from learning the movements that you're executing in the gym. But then, I mean, ultimately, someone who's been training for two or three years versus someone who's been training for 10 years, it's really not a night and day difference. It's just the person who's been training for a shorter period of time is probably just still going to be able to adapt faster than the person who's been training for a longer period of time. So if if you wanted to draw a line between quote-unquote intermediate or quote-unquote advanced lifters, I would primarily just base it on the rates of adaptations that, that one could reasonably expect. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just wouldn't worry about it. So it, it, from my perspective, you would only want to be able to categorize yourself if categorizing yourself allowed you to to do something useful with that information. Like if that's going to have a big impact on how you manage your training, for example. Um, but I, I don't think, I think that the differences between individuals are dramatically larger than the mean differences between quote unquote intermediate lifters and quote unquote advanced lifters. So I think that you should mainly just be focused on, you know, not what theoretical level of lifter I am and therefore how training should be impacted by that, but more so, you know, yourself as an individual and just figuring out what style of training works best for you as an individual. Um, So yeah, are you advanced or intermediate? Like I said, I don't know, nor nor do I particularly care. Um, and as for being 15 plus kilos from your genetic potential, according to Dr. Casey Butt's calculator, take that with a grain of salt. Um, I mean, if, if there was a way to... If there was a way to very reliably predict how much... Uh, how much muscle someone would eventually be able to gain, it would be used by every talent identification program in existence. Um, but there's not. And if so, the, the Casey butt calculator is based primarily on frame size. I think it's based on wrist and ankle measurements, um, which like 
there is research showing that that is a useful proxy for the amount of lean mass a frame can carry but we're we're talking a a very very rough prediction so whatever whatever that calculator tells you you could get up to give it like a 10 15 kilo cushion um it's it's uh it, it's really only suited for putting you in the right general ballpark not giving you a super precise estimate that you can necessarily expect to get to during your training career or necessarily expect to stop at in your training career like you may get nowhere close you may blow it out of the water um so yeah like just don't worry about it like (laughs) uh, rather than making long-term predictions about how much muscle you can gain and trying to categorize yourself just focus more on your personal training log and figuring out what helps you as an individual make muscle and strength gains like that's that's what i would focus on versus you know trying to forecast where you will eventually end up 10 years down the road i would also in the least expected move of all time i'd like to pull this toward the qualitative sociology research literature okay i bet you didn't see that coming greg i did not because i've never done that before ever never so I remember once I was compelled to read a paper from that field uh, for a class, and it was called The Mundanity of Excellence. I think the the author's name was Chambliss. He was like a sociologist, but he was studying uh, the practices of elite and sub-elite swimmers, basically in the same kind of team community situation, you know, um, basically in this situation where everybody's approximately similar demographically speaking, what separates the elite from the sub-elite? And the reason I bring this up is the idea of equating training time to training status. And what he found was these elite people, um, they had the same coaching because they were with the same coaches. They had the same training schedule. Their, Their workouts were not these heroic efforts where they day in and day out bested the sub-elite people. They did the mundane things the normal day-to-day stuff, substantially better. Um, and when they made their qualitative big-time leaps in in their status as a swimmer, it was not doing the same thing harder or more or for a longer time. It was making meaningful qualitative changes to what they did. And so I think a lot of times, I'm sure you've seen this, Greg, you'll see people who have trained poorly for many years and they're like, well, I've been training for four years. I'm not. I'm, I'm definitely not a beginner. And it's like, yeah, but you might be. Yeah. You know what I mean? And some people who jump right in on a really effective training program because they're they're in good hands. I mean, you can see people make four years of progress in a year because oh, they just sure. they cut through all the bull crap. I started lifting when I was twelve. I sucked at lifting until I was twenty. Like, <laughs> so I could have gone into a study when I was a freshman. And said, oh, I qualify for your study. I'm definitely a very advanced lifter. I've been lifting for six years. I sucked at lifting. I wasn't strong. I was garbage. You know, so it's, I encourage people, first of all, to get away from limiting their ceiling based on calculations and numbers. Like, it's interesting information, but like you said, you have to figure out 
a loose estimate of what you can do shouldn't be something that limits your ability to try. You right, know? right. And more importantly, the number of years you've been training is not indicative of how close you are to your ceiling because you might make really meaning qualitative, meaningful qualitative changes to how you train <laughs> that make that give you big jumps, really big jumps. I agree. Excellent. All right. Next question for Eric. Uh, short and sweet question. Fruits on contest prep question mark. By Shane O'Mac. Can, All right. Can, can you consume fruit when you're trying to get shredded, or is that going to just completely harpoon your diet? Well, I I, I just approved alcohol in prep, so I feel I feel like the one might infer that I'm going to allow fruit to be on the list as well. M- much like alcohol, the dose makes the poison. We <laughs> all know fruits in large quantity are are absolutely going to kill you, but you can eat maybe an apple once a week. Is is that where we're going with this? Exactly, yeah. An apple a week is a viable approach to a healthy life. That's the saying, I think. Um, okay, so glucose and fructose are different. Um, when, when people talk about, can I have fruit? What they're really talking about, generally speaking, is can I have fructose? Now, Common misconception, not all of the sugar in fruit is fructose. It's, it's usually a mixture of glucose and fructose and, and sometimes uh, other carbohydrate sources in smaller quantities as well. So um, the, gl- fructose and glucose are quite different uh, from a metabolic perspective. Um, so glucose is pretty much metabolized everywhere in the body. Fructose, on the other hand, is pretty much predominantly metabolized in the liver specifically. Um, So it has a really big role in replenishing liver glycogen and creating triglycerides in the liver as well. Um, Glucose and fructose have different effects on insulin secretion. There's a much more pronounced effect from glucose compared to fructose. Uh, They get transported by different uh, transporters in in cell membranes. So uh, glucose largely is transported by GLUT1 and GLUT4, Fructose, on the other hand, is transported by GLUT5. Um, and even when you look at glycolysis, they, they, the first couple steps of glycolysis are actually a little bit different when you compare glucose to fructose. So it, it's not one of those things where you can say, no, it's totally a wash. They're exactly the same. You're getting bogged down in minutia. So from a bio, kind of a biochemistry perspective, these are two very different things with, with distinct properties. Um, now, on the practical side, what do we actually do with this biochemistry? That's where some of these details become a little bit less uh, important. Um, so there are studies indicating that if we really drastically overfeed people with high fructose uh, intakes, um, we start to see that fructose is uh, a slightly more deleterious for certain health outcomes compared to glucose. And what we're really looking at there is indicators of like triglycerides, liver health, uh, fat um, fat accumulation in the liver, and, and the visceral fat component in general. So um, it, there are some distinctions, and, and it would be safe to say, hey, you probably don't want to like eat 300 grams of fructose a day. I think that's a very fair thing to say uh, in terms of just your metabolic health. Um, now... Where fruit comes into that is 
um, you know, practically speaking, if you're eating enough fruit to really flirt with those levels of fructose intake, your diet is just weird. <laughs> like, honestly, it's just a strange diet. Like, you're, you're, you're talking about getting like a few hundred grams of carbohydrate from fruit every day. And like, just don't do that. Just have, just have some fruit. You know? Are, are, are you aware of the, uh, the 30 bananas a day guy? Uh, I, I think his YouTube <laughs> name is Durian Ryder. I've heard of him. Yeah. Man, he's a trip. Yeah. Th- th- that's like, that sort of diet is the, I mean, I don't think he's a full on frugivore, but that is, I think virtually the only way that you could, you could eat enough fruit for it to become problematic. Yeah. Now, I mean, you you will find some research saying that once you start getting to like a hundred grams a day of fructose, and again, that's not total carbs from fruit, but a hundred grams of fructose a day, then you might start thinking about making some diet adjustments. But it's really important to note that most of those studies were dealing with people that are generally overweight or obese, but more importantly, or at least equally importantly, they're sedentary. Um, what you find is that the process of being active and especially doing rigorous exercise, uh, it really works wonders when it comes to keeping the liver from accumulating all of that fat. Um, so I think even if you are going to consume a diet that starts pushing toward that, that kind of borderline number of like a hundred grams a day of fructose, which again is a ton of fruit, I, I, w- <laughs> I want to reiterate, um, even if you're getting there, if you're like a lean person that's really active, it's still probably not going to matter that much. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I do tell people, this is my general saying that I find myself using more and more and more. When you eat weird amounts of things, weird things can happen. So like that doesn't mean fruit's bad, but like if you make it your personal um, project to see how much fruit a human could eat, weird things could probably happen, you know, either from a digestive perspective or looking at the liver with fructose. It's generally a better idea to not eat an objectively strange diet. You know, we've had this whole nutrition science thing going on for many, many decades. Um, We probably ought to use some of what we know. It it hasn't been perfect. There have been scapegoats in in the history of nutrition research, but... um, you should, generally speaking, approximate a normal human diet when you eat. Um, that That's my extremely evidence-based recommendation for today. Um, but to get, again, back to the direct question, you, you probably don't need to worry about it. And if you're eating enough fructose from fruit that you do need to worry about it, you already knew that your diet was pretty, was pretty atypical. <laughs> you already knew. Makes sense to me. Okay, we got a question from James Walshammy. Sure. I'd love a discussion around the benefits of lifting shoes with, with a raised heel. Uh, what does it do on a squat versus a leg press? I'm thinking the main difference is to do with the trunk in the squat, question mark. So what do you think about uh, Olympic weightlifting shoes with an elevated heel for the squat and for the leg press? Yeah, so starting starting with the squat, um, mechanically, 
So kind of just if we assume humans operate as simple machines, uh, the primary thing that squatting with a raised heel will do for you is allow more forward knee travel and allow your torso to be slightly more upright if you have uh, ankle mobility restrictions. If you don't have ankle mobility restrictions, theoretically squatting in a flat-soled shoe versus a shoe with a raised heel should be virtually identical. Um, and so, so in terms of who I would pretty strongly recommend uh, to at least try squatting with a raised heel, it, it would primarily be people with ankle mobility restrictions. Like I said, that's if we assume that humans are just simple machines. Something to note, though, is that um, much like in a previous episode, we talked about how um, a, a small difference in cueing or just a very small change in positioning for a lift can subjectively make it feel quite different, uh, either a lot stronger or just subjectively feel a lot better and more comfortable. I think that same principle applies when we're talking about lifting shoes. So it is not uncommon for uh, a lifter to um, like habitually squat in in one kind of shoe, put on another kind of shoe. You take a video of the squat, squat looks basically the same, but one just feels way, way better or way, way worse. Um, so even if even if you don't have ankle mobility restrictions and your squat, kinematically is is virtually identical with a flat soled shoe versus a raised heel you may still strongly prefer one to the other and so so i do think that um even if there's not something that looks like it should be an obvious benefit i i still think it's worth most lifters um playing around with with squatting with a raised heel just to see if like anecdotally for themselves that feels better um and then for squat versus leg press. So uh, it, Eric and I were talking about this before we started recording because uh, while I do have some raised heel squat shoes, I, I never leg press um, or I, I haven't leg pressed uh, consistently in probably a decade. So I don't think I've ever worn my squat shoes on a leg press. Um, but what Eric said made a lot of sense and he said it it basically just depends on the angle of the leg press platform so some leg presses if you're um like it, before you start going down your ankles will will basically be in neutral like you know your the, the angle of your foot coming off of your shank will be like 90 degrees um and in that case wearing a shoe with an elevated heel will likely allow for greater depth on the leg press and more forward knee travel. Uh, again, if you do have ankle mobility restrictions, but then a lot of leg presses, the, um, the platform that your feet rest on are already angled. So even with a flat soled shoe, it gives you the effect of as if you were already wearing a raised heel and in that situation, you're kind of stacking a raised heel 
on top of a faux raised heel just from the leg press platform and it can feel like leg pressing in high heels and just generally feel weird and and i guess theoretically could like hyper extend your ankle like probably not enough to hurt it but enough to put it in kind of a, a weird and uncomfortable range of motion so yeah i, I think for the leg press it it kind of kind of depends on how the leg press you use is built and specifically the angle of the platform yeah i mean it, it gets a little uncomfortable sometimes because it, it's like you're starting the leg press with a reasonable amount of plantar flexion at the mm-hmm. ankle and uh yeah you almost feel like you're pushing over the platform than through it <laughs> once once you get to a certain level of plantar flexion it's, mm-hmm. it's a very uncomfortable feeling if, if there's like a severe angle on that but uh if it's nice and flat uh, it, it it feels very similar to to squatting in a in an elevated heel that makes sense all right um so next question for eric i will say we don't typically shame people who ask us questions, but if Eric chooses to shame our next question asker, I wouldn't necessarily blame him for it. <laughs> um, and, and once you, dear listener, hear this question, you'll understand why. So, um, you know, for, for the sake of his own privacy and pride, I will leave out the questioner's name. But the question is, how do I prevent my traps from getting too big? So I'm not going to shame this uh, this listener. It's a wasted opportunity. No, it's so I always take the approach of empathy and understanding. And I have asked this question myself way back in the day. So I was getting ready for my first ever bodybuilding competition. And uh, a local gym owner was helping me out getting prepared. And I didn't know anything. And I thought I was very muscular. It turns out, in hindsight, I was what you would call obese. <laughs> but that's the, what the doctors were telling me at were, the time. Were, were you at least fuscular? Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. Yeah, but I expected to look like Flex Lewis by the time I got lean. And turns out, I had a lot of fat on me. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so I, I go to the gym, and I'm learning how to pose and all that stuff. And I'm like, you know, my traps are really overpowering this physique. How do I make sure that they uh, that I keep those in check? Maybe minimize their uh, their prominence in the physique in the interest of symmetry. Back in those days, I basically saw myself as uh, what's his name, eight timer, Lee Haney. Lee Haney. Yeah. In in my own mind, I was essentially Lee Haney in terms of symmetry. So sure. And the guy that was helping me out was far too nice to say it this way, but essentially the response was, listen, Eric, if we do a physique audit right now, you have all bad muscle groups. <laughs> if you allow the traps to <laughs> to overpower your physique, now you have one good muscle group. <laughs> so I think we ought to just play the numbers and keep the one good muscle group. <laughs> oh, um, man. So that was my... Uh, I, I I really do tell bodybuilders though, especially early in their career, dude, if it's growing, grow it. Yeah. Just grow it. It will build everything else around it in time. But the idea that you're, you know, if you're like kind of early in the career and you're like, eh, I don't know, I want to be symmetrical. No, forget about symmetry for now. Get huge. We'll deal with that later. 
Um, now, th- I-, I will say this. For people who aren't bodybuilders or powerlifters or strongmen or whatever, there are people who just aesthetically are like, oh, I don't like the way my physique looks when my blank is overdeveloped. So, you know, some people might not want huge lats or I mean, legs I, I or- understand that that's subjective aesthetic preference. I'm just saying that it's a dumb subjective aesthetic <laughs> preference. <laughs> yes. That's, that's my... Pre- so, here's my ode to traps. Uh, a lot of the people that folks think are are super jacked, um, like in film and on TV, aren't even that jacked. They just have huge traps. Yeah. Like, if you want a shortcut to everyone thinking that you're, like, way more muscular than you actually are, get big traps and get big forearms. Like, those are the two things that I think people... Uh, and a thick neck doesn't hurt either, but those are the things that I think people just uh, subconsciously evaluate. And if you have huge traps, huge forearms, thick neck, they're like, okay, this guy's fucking jacked. I don't want to mess with him. I think the prime example of that is uh, Tom Hardy as Bane in The Dark Knight Rises. If you... you, you at some point when Bane's on screen, um, and not when he's wearing his big coat, but, you know, some sometime when it's sun's out, gun's out, just pause it, evaluate Tom Hardy's physique. He's not that big or muscular, but Tom Hardy has enormous traps. And so as soon as Bane comes on the screen, you're like, oh, shit, that guy's fucking huge. And, like, if if you take a second to, to evaluate... You know, he's muscular, but he's not huge. But the traps just connect to some primal part of your brain. And it <laughs> makes you think it's like a it's like a lion's mane or or like the fucking toad that that blows its uh the sack under its chin up to look bigger. It's it's like that type of thing. Like as you always say, the lizard part of your brain. Yeah. Yeah. To it. Yeah. It, it just hits you right in the lizard part of your brain. And immediately makes you think that person is huge. So, whatever. People can have different aesthetic preferences. But if you're someone who wants to be perceived as a large, muscular person, your traps cannot be too big. Like, that. that is... Getting bigger traps should be the, the main focus of your training, honestly. And your life, yeah. in, in a way. Um, now, I will say this. I do have a straightforward solution. Um, Because we're here to help the people. Greg, don't forget. Um, If you want to avoid uh, developing your traps, then certainly you're going to have to get um, creative with your exercise selection and make sure that you're choosing uh, exercise variations that don't load the traps uh, directly. So, you know, if you want to be like, I mean, if you're deadlifting and deadlifting and deadlifting, um, it's going to be hard to avoid some kind of trap stimulus from that. Um, but, you know, th- that that would be the only really useful advice would be um, you'll just have to choose exercise variations that that very clearly don't load the traps directly. But uh, don't tell Greg that you made that choice. Fine. All right, Greg, question for you. I'm going to use a little bit of uh, creative license here to uh, to rephrase it. So uh, Mika asked, fiber type differentiation as consequence of a 
a specific stimulus. I'm thinking the question there is, can you intentionally train for a shift in fiber type? Is that how how you interpret that? Yeah, yeah, I, I, okay. I think that's uh, I think that's what Mika is asking. So, um, yes, you can, and it's well, you you can to some extent. Um, so, this question or the this answer catches a lot of people off guard. Um, and probably less so now since Andy Galpin is pretty well known at this point. But if you, um, if you took, uh, an anatomy and physiology class at any point during the last 20 years, you probably learned that fiber type interconversion between type 2A and type 2X fibers is possible and happens all the time. But you probably also learned that fiber type interconversion between type 1 and type 2 fibers doesn't really happen. Um, Or if it does happen, it's only under very extreme circumstances. So, for example, with aging, type 2 motor nerves can die and then uh, offshoots of type 1 motor nerves can re-innervate those prior type 2 fibers and then they become type 1 fibers. But that that's kind of um, a, a somewhat extreme case. So, but but you, you probably learned that just from normal day-to-day exercise training, you don't get interconversion of type 1 and type 2 fibers. So, what we now know is that we thought that mainly due to pretty crude methods of identifying fibers. Um, So it would primarily just be taking a muscle biopsy, cutting it, uh, cutting a cross section of it, staining it, and then based on how dark or how light those stained fibers showed up as, just identifying them as type 1, type 2A, or type 2X fibers and putting them neatly into those three categories. There is um, a a much more time-consuming but a much better method of quantifying fiber types um, where you you basically take single fibers and use gel electrophoresis to be able to quantify the percentage of different myosin heads within that muscle fiber. Um, and then you do that for a slew of fibers, and that gives you a better idea of, of the spectrum of fiber types an individual has. And that gives us the insight that there are hybrid fiber types. So you have some fibers that all of the myosin heads are type 1. You have some fibers where all of the myosin heads are, are type 2A. And most people don't have true type 2X fibers where all of the myosin heads within the fiber are type 2X. But some people have a smattering of them. Um, but then, especially for untrained athletes, y- you have a lot of hybrid fibers where... You know, maybe in one fiber, 70% of the myosin heads are type 2A, 30% are uh, type 1. In another fiber, maybe it's 70% type 1, 30% type 2A, uh, or a hybrid between 2A and 2X where, you know, some of the myosin heads are 2A myosin, some of them are 2X. And then you can even have hybrids that have type 1 myosin heads 
type 2a and type 2x so hybrid fibers are a thing and there is um so one of the hallmarks of training is that you basically lose hybrid fibers um and you lose them in the direction that you train for the most part so you know let's say you have just to make let's just assume type 2x fibers don't exist for a second just to make this illustration easy let's say pre-training you have 40 percent pure type 1 fibers 40 percent pure type 2a fibers and 20 percent type 1 type 2a hybrid fibers if you do aerobic training then those hybrid fibers will shift and become pure type 1 fibers such that after a fair amount of training, it would look something pretty close to 60% type 1, 40% type 2A, with very, very few hybrid fibers. If you detrained again, it would probably go back to 40, 40, 20, type 1, type 2A, and hybrid. If instead you did resistance training or some sort of anaerobic training, um, and like, like, heavy anaerobic training so like weightlifting strongman probably throwing stuff like that um it would shift the other direction such that you would wind up with 40 percent type 1 60 percent type 2a and very very few hybrids so having a lot of hybrid fibers is uh kind of a hallmark of being a very low training status um and just being pretty sedentary for the most part and trained athletes it, so I don't know, I, I don't know, and I don't even know how you would study whether like a pure type 2A fiber could become a pure type 1 fiber. Uh, I, I don't even know how you would quantify that. But what we do know is you can get um, very substantial fiber type differentiation within those hybrid fibers based on how you train. Um, and another thing is if you do have any type 2x fibers they pretty much just go away with training um i remember learning in xphys that doing power training would cause a fiber type interconversion from type 2a to type 2x um my professor that taught me that wasn't really a muscle phys guy so I don't know that he was basing that on any evidence. I think he may have just assumed that that's how it works. So that's how he taught us. But if you learn something similar, that doesn't really happen. Um, there, There is some research that if you do pretty low volume power training, you can better preserve type 2X myosin heads within your muscle fibers. But I, I don't necessarily know that that's a beneficial thing. But yeah, for the most part... Uh, your proportion of type 2x myosin heads goes down with training regardless of what type of training you do and those hybrids get interconverted or get converted primarily to either pure type 1 or pure type 2a in the direction of the type of training you do so if you do resistance training you'll mostly get conversion of hybrid fiber types to type 2a fibers if you mostly do aerobic endurance training you'll mostly get conversion of those hybrid fibers to type 1 fibers i have a follow-up question sure so if this co conversion can occur due to training do you think it 
matters? Do you think it's something that we ought to intentionally train for, or do you see it as a consequence of training? Um, yeah, I see it as a consequence of training. I mean, so you, you wouldn't tell somebody to go out and say, you should train like this so that you convert these fibers. No, I, I mean, the direction of the fiber type conversions kind of makes sense. Like, yeah, if, if you, if you want to be an endurance athlete, you probably want more type one myosin heads within, within your muscle fibers. And so just doing endurance training will give you that adaptation and you don't specifically have to do a specialized form of endurance training to cause that adaptation. And same would apply for type 2A myosin heads and resistance training. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I, I, I can't think of a situation where you would need to train for that adaptation that would be outside of the normal training you would want to do for whatever other types of adaptations you're aiming for. Yeah. Can I take a moment to brag really quick? Yeah. You mentioned uh, learning undergrad X-Phys muscle physiology. Did I ever tell you about who I learned muscle physiology from? No. So he was the PI on several studies looking at myostatin inhibition, um, starting with rodent models, then working up to primate models. And at the time that I was in that class, which was about 10 years ago, um, he was actually gearing up to do a human trial on myostatin inhibition. Um, When he talked about muscle, it was just so fascinating. Like, I would show up to that class like 15 minutes early to get the best seat. It was so cool. <laughs> That's um, awesome. I, I never I never ended up checking in to see if that human trial got off the ground or what, what the results were, though. I need to check that out someday. You should do that. Um. So, oh, man, I'm going to pull an Eric and butcher this name. It's, <laughs> it's Jeff something. It's Jeff O-I-E-N. I think... That might be the Irish spelling of Ian. I think this might be Jeff Ian, but I could be completely wrong about that. Anyway, uh, the question is protein refractory period, colon. If you agree with the theory, will eating a snack with protein in it an hour after a meal disrupt protein synthesis if there's another meal an hour or two after that? Hope that makes sense. Okay, so... I want to reference someone here, but I don't know how to say his name. Tromelin? How do you say his first name? Yorn. Yorn? I believe so. I, I knew it couldn't be Jorn. It'd be too simple. It'd be way too simple. I um, mean, honestly, dude, I, I'm i pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that he's Dutch. So, like... Should I not if, mention if, him? No, if we <laughs> if we butcher the name, the only, the only possible consequence is that we piss off more Dutch people, which... <laughs> I feel like at this point that bridge is burned. Yeah, that's true. I, I thought you were going to say we should blacklist him. Like, nope, no Dutch people on the show. That's it. It's... No, we 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 can be the magnanimous parties in this uh, in this period of gearing up for war. Like, we will probably eventually end up waging war with the Netherlands, but we don't want it to be said that we didn't attempt to extend an olive branch and be the magnanimous party. Yeah, we we will be be the bigger people. We will be above the feud and we'll still acknowledge good work where it's been done. Correct? Sure. Yeah. So uh, Yorn has written about this quite a few times. One was on Stronger by Science, um, strongerbyscience.com slash 
athlete protein intake. Uh, he also wrote something about it on his site. I believe it's his site called Nutrition Tactics. Yeah. Dot uh, com. And which I'll just say is a great site. Yeah. Um, if you're interested in muscle protein synthesis, just Google Nutrition Tactics Complete Guide to Muscle Protein Synthesis. It's um, it, it's the best and most thorough lay article you're going to find out there. It's it's really, really good work. Yeah, and so, I mean, Jorn, I mean, this is his thing. He, he loves muscle protein synthesis, specifically as it pertains to people that resistance train. So he's put he has put a lot of really good information out there. Now, the concept of the protein refractory period um, is based on some research, I believe mostly done in mice, showing that we give a meal, uh, muscle protein synthes- synthesis is spiked, uh, assuming that it's a meal that delivers a decent amount of leucine and uh, you know, a complete amino acid profile. So we get a spike in muscle protein synthesis. And then for some period of time, there's what we call refractoriness, where another bolus of protein isn't quite enough to establish another spike in protein synthesis. It's like you initiate it, and then you essentially have to wait to fully initiate that a second time. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the general takeaway from that line of research has been that you should separate your protein meals throughout the day and i think most people generally say three to five hours between meals uh, Mm -hmm. to kind of clear that refractory period that a lot of people say is probably about three hours give or take um now yorn wrote about that and he, he brought up a really good point that when you introduce resistance training into that picture things look a little bit different and so I, I know he specifically referenced a study by uh, Churchward Venn in uh, 2012. Mm-hmm. And what they found was that for because resistance training causes such a robust and pronounced increase in muscle protein synthesis and a heightened sensitivity to the initiation of protein synthesis, um, what, what he found was basically that because that effect persists for so long after the resistance training bout um this whole uh refractoriness concept seemed a little bit less critical it basically you know the takeaway that that yorn arrived at and that he very convincingly very convincingly kind of paints the picture for is that if you're a resistance trained person it still probably makes sense to split your meals up in some logical manner but it probably doesn't make a lot of sense to get too bogged down in the details of timing meals down to the minute or the hour. Um, so I think the general recommendation would be, and this is the exact recommendation I give my clients, uh, you want to have it preferably three to five meals that contain a decent bolus of high-quality protein. Um, and if you can't get a high-quality protein, then you need to match some low-quality proteins to make that work. Um, but three to five uh, protein meals throughout the day spaced relatively equidistant, but without giving yourself a headache trying to get bogged down in too many details. But I mean, if you're a resistance trained person, um, you know, you're, you're stimulating protein synthesis all over the place, have high quality protein, at least a good 20 or 30 gram dose, at least three times a day. Three to five should be fine. I, I think that's about as technical as you really need to get when it comes to timing protein. What do you think, Greg? I mean, that makes sense to me. Um, 
I think that one area, so I, I think that, that protein timing stuff is interesting, but one thing I'll note is that the, the, the best long-term studies we have um, on the effects of what would be considered suboptimal protein timing patterns on actual changes in performance and body composition are probably Grant Tinsley's two uh, time-restricted feeding studies, where basically they have people consuming all of their food within an eight-hour time window instead of spread throughout the day, as someone typically would. And both of those studies, um, older one in men and more recent one in women, found that that didn't seem to compromise changes in performance or changes in body composition um, which w- with resistance training, which leads me to believe that not not that protein timing doesn't matter at all, but that it's maybe even less important than we even previously thought. Um, that that if it does have an effect, it's probably a very very small one. If that effect, I mean, so. Let me be clear, like protein timing does matter on some level. So, you know, maybe eating all of your protein within an eight hour time window versus a 16 hour time window doesn't make much of a difference. But if, say, you only consumed protein once per week, even if you matched for weekly protein intake, that probably ain't good. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that it's probably much more lenient than we previously thought. And the thing is, like, if someone's going to make a hard argument for protein timing making a really big difference, they're they're going to be primarily relying on acute studies looking at short-term changes in muscle protein synthesis. But like I said, uh, Grant Tinsley's two studies on time-restricted feeding with resistance training is probably the best, like, actual longitudinal evidence that we have. So that that's probably what I would hang my hat more on personally. I agree. And Grant is awesome, by the way. Terrific guy. Really good researcher. His most recent paper that you're referring to, if you've read through it, it is really well done. Oh, yeah. Really. It's, it's really good. Really good. It doesn't look like an exercise science paper. <laughs> and I mean that in all the best ways. <laughs> But you, you know what I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. You can tell. Um, but anyway, it. <laughs> um, the thing that I think people miss on this conversation, like I was alluding to earlier, Grant has done these studies in resistance trained people, and resistance training with a decent program is such a robust stimulus for protein synthesis that lasts for such a long period of time. I think it probably buys us a little bit of wiggle room when it comes to to protein timing. Yeah, yeah. I also think people overlook the fact that like even the the basic uh recommendation I gave, right? So 3 to 5 protein meals at least 3 hours apart, 3 or 4 hours apart. I mean, if you have an 8-hour feeding window, you you could meet that criteria very easily. I mean, if you're eating it you eat a meal at noon, 4 p.m., 8 p.m. Mm-hmm. You just did intermittent fasting. You had three, you know, three large boluses of protein four hours apart. So, you know, I think people 
sometimes forget that intermittent fasting, if you're looking at it as an eight-hour feeding window, is not a particularly restrictive window in terms of meeting those basic guidelines. And even if you take a more extreme approach, it's like, oh, well, I recommended three and you only got two. That's not a huge diversion, even if you're going down to like a four-hour feeding window. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's not that extreme of an approach. Um, so yeah, I, I if if I had to lead someone in one direction or the, or the other, of are you going to really stress over protein timing or just say screw it, I'll eat when I'm hungry? I would almost lead toward the screw it, I'll eat when I'm hungry because it it just doesn't seem to be the type of thing that you should lose a lot of sleep over. I agree. All right. Um, so we talked a little bit about hormones with the alcohol question. Now we've got another one from Penn Tarleton. What are the chronic effects of resistance training on hormone levels? Uh, man, so that's a good question. And the answer, uh, frustratingly, is it depends. Um, so we don't have... We don't have the type of longitudinal evidence that I would want to make generalized statements. Um, most most of what we do have that's out there is kind of we take people who are untrained, we put them on a resistance training program, uh, and we measure their hormone levels, you know, pre-training and then after four months of training or something like that. But the question you then have to ask yourself is was the training program they were put on for that study uh a valid archetype for all resistance training you know um and i would i would argue probably not and then also you know would there be any adaptations between you know 4 months of training and 5 years of training maybe i don't know um, so I, I don't think we, we have a really good idea about that. Um, one thing that does seem pretty consistent is that, uh, resistance training decreases, uh, myostatin levels. Um, that's probably one of the things that is permissive for muscle hypertrophy. That does seem to be a pretty consistent, uh, hormonal adaptation, um, th- there was a, a reasonably long-term study on weightlifters. I want to say, um, I want to say they, they just had people go about their normal training and just took blood samples maybe at like year zero and like year five or something like that, um, that found slight increases in testosterone levels, but probably not enough to really, really hang your hat on. Um, but one of one of the things to keep in mind is that most most hormones in your body are under some sort of negative feedback loop um and the primary things that would be influencing levels of those hormones would not be resistance training or at least like the, the chronic effects of resistance training so so like acutely you know you do some resistance training you're going to have huge spikes in catecholamine levels uh epinephrine norepinephrine but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to chronically change your baseline catecholamine levels so so other than the the decrease in myostatin i i don't feel confident enough 
about any other hormonal changes that, that I would feel good saying that like, yes, this is a thing that happens and it's consistent enough that you can bank on it. Um, and it, and it probably largely depends on your training dose as well. So it, it seems like, you know, moderate levels of training probably don't have a huge impact on hormone levels, but obviously, uh, overtraining does, or especially like pretty high levels of training with pretty low energy intake causing relative energy deficiency, um, that, that has impacts on a lot of hormones, but can you necessarily say that's due to chronic effects of resistance training, or is that due to, you know, excessive resistance training with low energy intake? Like, I, I wouldn't want to attribute that solely to resistance training. So yeah, um, other than, other than the, the, the decrease in myostatin, I don't, feel confident enough about the other changes that have been reported in studies to to really throw throw that out there as changes that one should necessarily expect with resistance training. Do you do you have any input on that, Eric? I have nothing valuable to add. Cool. Uh just like normal. Okay. Um so next question for Eric. I just want to remind you you are a temporary guest host. So Yeah, I'm I'm pushing my luck today. I'm yeah. feeling uh feeling a little sassy. Yeah. Okay. We'll work on that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> next question from Nick Arache, I'm going to assume. Um what are the best strategies to reverse the effects of metabolic adaptation from a fat loss phase while minimizing fat gain? Smiling emoji. Simplest question, but I love hearing it discussed. Praise hands emoji. Yeah, so I wrote an article on metabolic adaptation for the site. I think it was, what, like 22,000 words? Thereabouts, yeah. So it might have actually been more than that. But I, I'm going to challenge myself to be concise here. Um, so if you want the full, every thought I've ever had on the topic, it is in writing and accessible for free anytime. Uh, but to answer this question, so we're talking about metabolic adaptation. Um, there are essentially two distinct components that contribute to metabolic adaptation. The first would be the short-term acute energy deficit. So just the day-to-day -day not having enough calories to make ends meet right now. The other component is the more long-term loss of fat storage. Um, so basically your body being a biological entity realizing that over time you've been working at a deficit for a while and all that energy that you had saved up is running pretty low. So these are both uh, inputs that generally speaking feed into the hypothalamus which uh, initiates this whole mess that we call metabolic adaptation so the question is we do this fat loss phase and let's say we do it right and at the end of it we're pretty damn lean and probably not eating a lot of calories so how do we try to reverse some of those things and recover from the diet without putting on all the fat that we just gained um I'd like to say that there's an easy way that you get your total energy expenditure right back to normal without gaining fat and all your hormones go back to normal. But um, I don't think I can promise you that. I, there are some useful things that we can do. Um, step one is doing the diet itself well. 
And so some key things there. First of all, it's always nice if you don't dig a big hole to climb out of. Okay, so if you have an ideal body weight in mind, the ideal situation is that during your weight gain phase, you don't get too far away from it. Um, when we start to see really huge overall magnitudes of weight loss, um, it makes the it makes the process a bit challenging, as you would imagine. Uh, another thing is having an appropriate rate of weight loss. So somewhere between a half a percent to a percent of body weight per week is usually a comfortable rate of weight loss that ensures that you don't have to have an enormous deficit and that you don't lose uh, body weight at a rate that is likely to threaten your performance, uh, threaten excessive drops in hormone levels, uh, and threaten the loss of lean mass. Uh, you want to do resistance training and have a sensible diet or a sensible size deficit throughout the weight loss. Um, if you can, there's some new research showing that diet breaks or kind of multiple day refeeds might be helpful in attenuating metabolic adaptation on the way down to your ideal weight. Um, the, the, I would say probably the most solid evidence is implementing a two week diet break every two weeks. So two weeks of dieting and two weeks of maintenance. And it's really important. A diet break is not taking a break from the diet and just eating whatever you want. It, it is a controlled period of time where you eat exactly at maintenance. Um, and then throughout the diet, you want to make sure you have a decent macronutrient split and you don't overdo your cardio. Now, after the diet, what can we do? Um, you'll want to gain some weight right out of the gate to facilitate recovery, assuming that you got really, really lean. Now, if you didn't get really, really lean, if you if you just got to like a pretty sustainable body fat level, then you actually probably can bypass that step um, because you're probably not hurting too bad in the metabolic adaptation department. Um, but what you'll want to do is, is start increasing caloric intake and you want to stay active during that process. When you look at the research of who really does a good job sustaining weight loss, um, they have two characteristics. The first thing is that they track things well. They diligently track their body weight, their caloric intake, things like that. Uh, the other thing is that they stay active. Non-exercise activity and exercise activity, when you let those fall off, you, you start um, really working against your goals in this regard. Um, so you basically want to just commit to a small but consistent surplus. You don't want to be all over the place where you're overeating and binge eating some days and then trying to correct and overcorrect and, and have days where you're in a pretty sizable deficit. Um, you want to train hard to try to promote as much muscle growth as you can during that time period. It's going to be hard. Uh, people that are weight reduced, if they start gaining any weight, it tends to preferentially be fat mass. So the ways we offset that is we try to commit to a small but consistent caloric surplus, an effective resistance training program with a high protein diet, try to stay active even when you're outside of the gym. And for now, that's a about the best we can do. Did, did I miss out on any key things, Greg? Mm, nothing that's immediately coming to mind. It it sucks. I mean, the, unfortunately, the weight maintenance, the numbers aren't great. It, it's hard to do because uh, you get down to a body weight and you, can, you can't get away with eating the same calories you used to. You have to be really diligent about keeping your activity level up. You have to meticulously track things. You, you have to stay on it. Um, now, over time, I do think from a behavioral perspective, it gets a little easier and more manageable. Um, I don't think that, I mean, 
if you were 40 pounds over your ideal weight, you were probably, you probably had a lot of activity and eating behaviors that were conducive to maintaining that extra 40 pounds of weight. So a lot of people want to get in a situation where now they're at their ideal body weight, but everything else is the same. They go back to their normal eating activity habits that they used to have. I, I really don't think that's going to happen for the overwhelming majority of people. And I think that's something that takes a lot of wrestling with. And you, you kind of have to get to the point where you're comfortable accepting that, I think. It doesn't mean every day is going to be an absolute grind and you're going to feel like you're starving your whole life. But it's you, you have to make some pretty meaningful behavioral changes and some adjustments to how you interact with food and how you view your activity level, if that makes sense. Makes sense to me. Okay. Um, ooh, this is a fun one. So we've got a question here to wrap things up from 81NC19. That's great. So to help me with the, the name recognition, if you could just make it a very easy alphanumeric code, that would be extremely helpful moving forward. Um, so even on Facebook, go ahead and change your Facebook name, make it an alphanumeric code like that. So the question is, what exercises are overrated and should be eliminated? Part two of the question, which exercises are underrated and need more attention? Overrated exercises. Oh, I'm going to start with a spicy one. If you're not a power lifter, I think bench press is overrated. I think that the, the freedom of movement that you can get from dumbbells um, is, is probably a better option. The biggest drawback to dumbbells is it's probably not a great idea to go for a one rep max dumbbell press, but unless you're a power lifter, you don't necessarily need to know your one rep maxes in the first place. But yeah, it's um like dumbbell bench is a lot more joint friendly for a lot of people because you can do it with a a quasi neutral grip, um, which which. I have found helps a lot of people who have either elbow or shoulder issues. Um, like I said, you have more freedom over the range of motion. Um, for most people, it, it the dumbbell press movement of your hands just feels more natural than your hands being locked in a, a given position, like X distance from your shoulders for, for the entire press. Um, and you can also just pretty easily get a longer range of motion if you want. Um, for a lot of people, that doesn't matter, but especially for people with relatively big chests, um, a bench press is like a partial range of motion exercise, which is perfectly fine if you're a power lifter and minimizing range of motion helps you be good at your sport. But if you're just training for general strength and muscle development, it's probably not a great thing. Um, so yeah, I think that, uh, and, and I'm certainly not saying bench press is a bad exercise, but the fact that it is like the exercise that most people in the gym care about, I think that again, it's not bad, but I, I, I would say it is substantially overrated. Would it be controversial to suggest that like essentially all calf training is overrated? That is, that's very controversial and I'll fight you over that. Calf training is the best. Why Why do you say... I, when's the last time you trained calves? Two days ago. Really? Hell yeah, I love calf training. Dude, I, I've taken months off of calf training, and I have not seen it, 
this is probably saying more about me than calf training, but <laughs> I have not seen any change in my calf size from like six months of detraining. Well, I mean, if if we think about uh, muscle hypertrophy versus maintenance, we know that it takes way less stimulus to maintain adaptations than to accrue them in the first place. And since you walk around day to day, I mean, your calves are probably getting adequate stimulus to maintain whatever muscle you built. So I, I don't think not losing calf size is evidence of calf training being worthless. I think that just shows that walking around day to day is an adequate level of stimulus to maintain whatever you built. Okay, so build up some calf mass and then it then it's useless. Then just walk around all day. That that's my modified hot take. Sure, but calf training is so fun. It's not fun, dude. I it have, feels great. Are you kidding me? Dude, I have a, a an E version ankle sprain from my wrestling days that it, my ankle is still just a mess from it. What do you, your ankle fell off? Yeah. How are you doing that? Uh I mean like You can't even move your ankle. How are you doing <laughs> calf training? loading up a bunch of weight is the only way that that ankle can go into dorsiflexion and so i so i have really fucked up ankles for for anyone listening and i think the reason i like calf training so much is uh it's the only way that i can stretch my my calves and ankles out to make them feel good uh, my body weight is insufficient to to cause my body or to cause my calves to go into uh into dorsiflexion. So, getting on something like a leg press and loading up like four or five hundred pounds gives me enough force to actually go into to dorsiflexion and stretch my calves out. Man, it feels good. And just for context, I mean, your ankle, your foot fell off. You had a basketball injury. Yeah. It- just everything broke and tore. A bystander, a bystander vomited from seeing it. Correct. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a, a compound uh, tib fib fracture, and when I stood up, my my foot was pointed the wrong direction. So, yeah, my my left ankle is pretty pretty worthless at this point. I will say, for a less hot take of overrated exercises, I've gotten away from doing the barbell military press, and I've moved more toward unilateral dumbbell pressing overhead, it, almost like a circus dumbbell press. Mm-hmm. And I've found that it, it might be because I have one shoulder that's great and one that's terrible, but the the unilateral approach to me feels so much more natural. Um, you know, I, I'm standing not against a back pad, so the scapula and the glenohumeral joint can kind of move with their natural mm-hmm. uh, synchronicity between them. Um, I've got a lot of my clients switching over from the traditional military press to to single single arm overhead pressing. How do you feel about that? No, I can see that that uh, that makes a lot of sense. And, and a lot of a lot of people that aren't really into overhead pressing really struggle with clearing the chin and then kind of getting back under the bar on the on the military press yeah yeah um any uh underrated exercises so that we're not just completely bashing things and being negative all day um i think single leg rdls are great um i was gonna say that god damn it okay how about you expand i I have a different one i have a different oh man i was gonna say you can expand on that and i'll come up with another one uh, yeah, I, I think single leg RDLs are great. I think they, um, so most, 
the the vast majority of the people who I have had try out single leg RDLs who come from any sort of strength sports background, um, and primarily here I'm thinking mostly powerlifting and a few weightlifters. So our sports are very bilateral. Uh, like squatting is a bilateral exercise, deadlifting is a bilateral exercise. There, there's some level of of asymmetry if you do like a split jerk, but you know, for, for the most part, cleans, snatches, bilateral exercise. And I think that a lot of people wind up with like the hip extensors on one leg being considerably stronger than the other and the range of motion in their hips differing uh, a pretty fair amount. And here I'm thinking like uh, adduction and and internal rotation range of motion. And so a lot of times when people try single leg RDLs for the first time, they'll notice that the movement feels pretty easy on one leg. Um, they can, you know, whatever implement they're lifting, they can take it all the way down to the floor without much of an issue. Control is good. They get onto the other leg and just balancing on that leg feels fine. But then once they get into, I don't know, maybe 40 degrees of hip flexion, then it just all starts falling apart. Uh, <laughs> and the range of motion is way worse. The control is way worse. Um, strength through like the upper part of the range of motion is pretty good. But once they start getting into deeper hip flexion, one hip is way weaker than the other. Uh, and so I think single leg RDLs one are a good exercise to like equally strengthen your hip extensors on both sides. Uh, like I, I think that you get a good training effect from it. And I think it's a good exercise for shining a magnifying glass on strength and balances you may have. To be clear, I'm not saying that in a context of, oh, if you're, you know, 3% asymmetrical, you're going to get injured. Because I, th I think that's how a lot of people think about asymmetries. I'm, I only worry about asymmetry insofar as if you have a major strength deficit or a major movement deficit on one side of your body, that could be negatively affecting your performance. So I'm, I'm thinking about this purely from a performance perspective, not like a injury perspective. Um, but yeah, I think that bo both as an exercise for actually training your hip extensors and as kind of a diagnostic tool, single leg RDLs are absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I've been doing a ton of those lately. Um, I've been doing uh, with a with a dumbbell or a kettlebell. Um, I haven't gotten into the barbell too much with those, but that'll be down the road once I get a little more comfort with it. My underrated exercise is for the physique-oriented folks out there. When you think of lat development, you know, everybody's doing a million kinds of rows, a million kinds of pull-downs and pull-ups. The straight arm pull-down... I think is a very underrated exercise for lat development. And if you're fortunate enough, there's the old school hammer strength pullover machine. Oh, hell yeah. That is only found in like the dungeon gyms. And then just like you'll, you'll bump into it randomly and you'll be like, how did this get here? But that machine is so clutch. It should be mandatory in all commercial gyms. <laughs> so clutch for lat development. Absolutely love it. You, it, it is an ungodly lat pump that cannot be replicated. No, I agree. I, I've, 
I don't think I've ever used the original machine, but I've used that type of machine in one of the gyms that I used to train at maybe five years ago had that machine. And yeah, like I I do very little direct lat training, but that machine just felt so good. I still found a way to use it like two or three times a week. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, I think that does it for this episode. Uh, Thanks for listening and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.